From training to performing, join our Big League Conversation. Welcome to the CSP Elite Baseball Development Podcast with your host, Eric Cressy. Welcome back to the CSP Elite Baseball Development Podcast. I'm your host, Eric Cressy, and this is episode 62. John O'Neill, our director of performance at Cressy Sports Performance Massachusetts, is going to be filling in as a guest host on this episode. And it's actually going to be a really good follow-up to the recent interview we did with Lee Taft, where we covered a lot of multi-directional movement for baseball players. Today, he's going to be talking with Derek Hansen, who's a wealth of information with respect to sprint mechanics. He's got some unique approaches to dealing with hamstrings and injuries. So Derek's one of really, really sharp guys, and John's a guy who's going to get some great info out of him as they go through an awesome conversation on the topic of sprint training. So we're in for a good one today. This episode is brought to you by Athletic Greens. It's an all-in-one superfood supplement with 75 whole food sourced ingredients to support your body's nutritional needs across five critical areas. Energy, immunity, gut health, hormonal support, and healthy aging. I'm an avid user of Athletic Greens myself in spite of the fact that I tend to be a supplement minimalist. To me, this is a product that is much more like whole food nutritional insurance as opposed to a true supplement. The ingredients have been carefully selected at the highest quality, most natural source. You get essential vitamins and minerals, digestive enzymes, prebiotics, probiotics, and that's the zero compromise approach from the company. It's plant-based, sourced from whole foods at the highest quality, so you won't find harmful chemicals, artificial colors or flavors, preservatives or added sugar. Um, really, it's perfect for folks who are gluten and dairy-free, paleo, keto, vegan-friendly, um, great for people who are intermittent fasting, all that fun stuff. Um, personally, I love it for, for obviously our athletes who don't get enough nutritional uh, benefits from fruits and vegetables because they don't eat enough. So it's a way to kind of plug in holes in diets. But also, I really like it for our college and professional athletes who may have complex travel schedules where quality food options aren't always at hand. Um, on a personal level, I'm a husband, father of three, and an entrepreneur. Um, we split our time between two states, and, and I'm also still an avid lifter. Um, so life is inherently crazy, and it can be stressful, and sleep deprivation is definitely something that we encounter. So I rely on Athletic Greens uh, for part of my immune support and believe firmly that it's, it's made a big difference in keeping me healthy in spite of how crazy our lifestyle is. Um, they've got a great offer in place. If you head to athleticgreens.com backslash Cressy, They'll get you 20 free travel packets with your purchase. Again, that's athleticgreens.com backslash Cressy, C-R-E-S-S-E-Y, and you can claim your special offer. What's up, guys? Welcome to the Elite Baseball Development Podcast. Uh, my name is John O'Neill. I'm the Director of Performance at CSP Massachusetts. I'm here filling in for Eric today. and. Uh, I have with me a coach uh, who's known for his work in the track and field community and specifically with sprinters and has worked with all different types of athletes uh, by the name of Derek Hansen. Um, so I'll let Derek kind of introduce himself and give us a little bit on his background. Thanks, John. Um, yeah, I, I started off as a track athlete myself through high school, college, competed at a national level in Canada, and uh, from there just coached track athletes when I was doing my graduate work um, in university, started coaching, and then just continued on and, and worked for about 20 years, just working primarily with track. And then I was also doing eventually some more strength and conditioning 
work um, at a university and slowly got involved with obviously different sports, everything from basketball, soccer, football, uh, swimming, you name it. Um, also, you know, work with the softball program and women's softball program in Canada, the national team, the Olympic program for a number of years. And I've slowly, you know, started working and expanding into different professional sports over the last, say, 10 to 15 years. So um, everything, for the most part, has been speed uh, related um, and trying to get people faster and um, a lot of work in the NFL as well in, in terms of working with teams and trying to, uh, you know, put something together for them in the off season in particular when they have the time to train. So that's that's kind of where I'm at now and, and, and have had a lot more interest, I would say, as of late by uh, Major League Baseball teams and, and, and doing some of the same stuff with them. Sure. Um, what specifically, when a Major League team contacts you, are they looking to get? I think initially a lot of it was focused around my work in doing uh, prevention and return to play work around hamstring strains. It seems like it's a, a big enough issue. Um, because of the workloads and, and the you know number of games and, and maybe some of the limited time to actually train on speed, so that that's probably one of the first things. So I've I've had more I would say athletic trainers and medical staff contacting me initially, um, and then as part of that, looking at the performance side with the strength and conditioning coaches. But that's probably the first thing was just the the rash of hamstrings that you see week to week uh, in, in baseball. I'm happy you mentioned that right away because that's actually one of the bullet points that I have for later on. It's something that I really want to get into um, because I know that your viewpoint on return to play programs uh, when it comes to hamstring strain is a little atypical compared to the traditional um, sports medicine model. Um, so could you talk a little bit about um, how you structure a return to play program around a hamstring strain? Yeah, it, it's a bit counterintuitive. So, you know, I've, I've presented at the NFL Combine a, a number of times on my approach. And a lot of the time people are a little taken back that it is a sprint-based approach. Uh, even within, say, forty hour, 48 hours after the injury, I'll be doing drills that are related to running mechanics and basically trying to get them back to doing some sort of acceleration, albeit over short distances, as soon as possible. Um there's there's a lot of good things about acceleration that can help sort of retrain the hamstring without putting it at risk and a lot of it you know is dependent on the posture when you accelerate as opposed to upright sprinting which can expose the the hamstring to more stretch and eccentric load so uh, we do a very very progressive sprint based or acceleration based approach over say 10 yards 10 meters 10 yards which is is really only about six or seven strides and from that approach you know i found that you know if somebody usually takes three to four weeks to come back from a you know relatively significant hamstring strain sometimes we can narrow that down to like seven to ten days just by you know forcing them to some degree to reprogram you know how the hamstring works a lot of this is is due to the fact that just the brain doesn't process the information fast enough and puts the hamstring at at higher risk of strain in terms of allowing it to lengthen at the right time and shorten at the right time so we found that going back and retraining that skill um you know did did a lot to not only recuperate the hamstring but also prevent future hamstring strains so 
Um, it's very, like I said, counterintuitive. We're, we're, we're working on mostly a training approach, not necessarily a, a conventional rehab and rest approach. So I think as a listener, if you hear like, oh, you can cut down the return to play on a hamstring from, let's say, four weeks to 10 days, like you mentioned, I think the immediate thought is, all right, how do I get my hands on that program? Or how do I, uh, how do I start doing that program next time I have a hamstring strain? Or maybe you're someone who currently has a hamstring strain. Um, what are some kind of hidden things within the program that you caution people against just jumping into it if they haven't actually talked to you about it or kind of vetted out how the whole program works? Yeah, I think, you know, a lot of the time people hear like it's a sprint based approach so that they can just sprint right away. Um, and there are grades of intensity and um, making sure that you're kind of building each day a little bit more. So it might be maybe we're doing upright drills like lifting high knees and keeping everything very vertical um, and then doing that in a skip or a running high knee drill and just making sure that the boxes are checked off. So it's very competency based. So if you can do a march with your knees coming up, you know, do you have any pain? No, not really. Okay, good. Let's go to a skip, which is a little higher velocity. How about the skip? And they might say something like, yeah, I, I feel a little bit of a tug at the hamstring. Okay, that's fine. That means that we're working it uh, appropriately. And then if we go to a running high knee, they might still be able to tolerate that very soon after. Um, and then if once, you know, you want to get them through some volume of those drills where they're asymptomatic or subsymptomatic in terms of like, okay, they can still do it. It doesn't get worse. It doesn't create more pain. Um, you know, they might just feel it. And that's, that's the place you want to be where they're conscious of it, but it's not getting worse or it's not creating more pain or, or inflammation or bruising or anything like that. So as long as you're in these kind of holding patterns for, a, you know, a day or two, and then you can move to the next level, which would be you know, once you've increased the volume, you can start doing some short accelerations from sort of like a, a high position, I say, like you can, you're not getting into a three point stance or, you know, low to the ground, you're just kind of a tall position, you kind of fall into it, and you just turn the legs over over those seven strides. The idea being that we want to introduce a cyclical movement, um, but we want things to be safe. So, you're, you know, there's a technical component to that. I usually just say, just think of, uh, you know, don't lift the knees too high initially, just work on frequency. You know, a lot of, a lot of studies have shown that if you're a high level sprinter, you're probably going to be over four strides per second. Um, so that rhythm is imperative at any point during the sprint. So you're at four, four and a half strides per second, say you're Usain Bolt, you're doing that, you know, on the second and third step, but you're also doing it on the 40th step as well. So that the only thing that's changing is your stride gets longer or you, you know, put more force in the ground and you vault into the next stride longer and longer and longer. But that frequency is pretty constant depending on what point of the race you're in. So I use that as my foundation is like, I'd rather have you turning over at four strides per second with little steps initially to build in that quality. And then over time, we start getting you to take bigger strides, which usually means you're just stepping higher on those drills or in the acceleration. So Stride length comes, but we're certainly trying to establish a stride frequency pattern uh, right from the get-go um, to really train that brain to turn things on and off quickly. Would you say uh, that same line of thinking would go or be in effect for uh, the course of an off-season? Like, let's say you're developing an entire baseball off-season for somebody. Um, are you training a lot of short uh, acceleration-based sprints to train frequency? 
early offseason before getting into some maybe more sports-specific stuff later in the offseason? Yeah, I'd say it's it's very easy to establish that quality consistently early on. And then, you know, once you have that, then when you add strength or power, you know, the stride length will come as long as they're keeping that frequency. Um, you know, I'm very careful with with a lot of resisted work. So if people are doing sled pushes or pulls or hills, um, I don't want to get too far away from that frequency component um, because I know it's very easy to ingrain sort of a slower, sort of longer stride, which again will translate into a longer ground contact time. And it becomes more of a strength movement than an, an elastic or speed movement. So I'm, I'm, you know, I'm always keeping that in the back of my mind that I like that rhythm to be present. And, um, you know, if it's not, you know, then, you know, we'll use things like uh, there's a lot of apps that I use are, uh, metronome apps, which just, you know, establish a rhythm that I want somebody to follow in a drill or a sprint and it's audible so they can hear it. So, you know, four strides per second is going to be 240 beats per minute. And I set that up and, you know, uh, maybe you select music that's, you know, a little more up-tempo to, to have that in your facility. So I'm always thinking about these types of things and how to naturally get that frequency in and establish that rhythm. And then, you know, like I said, if we get into more sports specific stuff, um, it's present and we don't really have to talk about it if they're doing, um, some base running drills or something to do with fielding or, you know, just even off home plate after hitting a ball or something, it's going to be there. It's going to be present and we don't have to necessarily emphasize it or talk about it. They can focus on the skill component. Sure. Um, just in terms of volume that you mentioned there, um, I have in my notes something that you've mentioned before uh, of like a 10 by 10 return to play program um, that also becomes uh, just a general aerobic fitness measure um, later on when somebody is healthy. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. And the 10 by 10 was really started back when I was an athlete and there were a couple of, of people who had used it for uh, track rehabilitation for hamstrings like Charlie Francis, Gerard Mocker in Canada and, and that was just something that was present, um, as part of, you know, regular rehab. L luckily I didn't have any real hamstring issues personally, but I know other people who used it effectively. Um, there were, there were actually a couple of middle distance runners who kept straining hamstrings and that's what they used. Um, uh, and I think that really helped them in the long run. So pardon the pun. Um, <laughs> so, um, I've kind of used that as my base of all my return to play. Now it's kind of a good template for me to look at how people accelerate, uh, how they manage stride frequency. Um, and then that has blossomed into almost like a prevention program or in some cases a performance program, especially if people have limited space, which is, you know, kind of what a lot of people are dealing with now. Um, so if you can run for six or seven strides, you know, decelerate, turn around, do it again, back and forth 10 times. Um, it's actually a good way to stay in shape. It's a good way to develop strength and, and power. And um, it, it really applies to a, a more of a field or team sport environment, court sport, because you're not really, you're, you're never really running that far, at least at high speeds, you might be jogging around, but there's very few opportunities to go farther than, you know, 10 yards at full, full effort. So, there's a specificity sort of component to it that, that works really well for team sport. And I have a lot of 
uh, colleagues and friends who are now implementing it as part of, you know, working in basketball, working in ice hockey, working in, um, you know, soccer in Europe and around the world. So it's, it's, it seems to have universal applicability. And, you know, as long as you have some of that in your program, it doesn't have to be dominant, but certainly I would have that as part of maybe one day a week where we're doing those short sprints and doing a lot of repetitions and building up, you know, 30 reps, 40 reps, 50 reps over a session. Um, you know, it, it, it just seems to work very well um, for the team sport environment. Sure. What markers are you using in terms of total, whether it's uh, total reps, like you mentioned, or total volume from a, a yardage or meters perspective? Um, what are you trying to work people up to or what's your thought process behind that? I mean, there's been a lot of experimentation over the, over the years. And, um, you know, I said, usually as a base volume, if I'm starting somebody like three sets, you know, 30 reps or 300 yards or meters total is not a bad place to be, even for maintenance purposes, if you're working with the team in season. So three sets of 10 by 10 um, with three minute breaks in between. Usually it takes about a minute and a half to go through that one set. So it's very... Um, time economical. Um, and, you know, if I were to work on more sort of conditioning qualities or, or just general fitness qualities, you can work up to five or six sets. So 500 or 600 yards. I've done some experiments with myself of like doing, you know, starting with three sets and every other day or every day going up a hundred meters. So, you know, 300, 400, 500, 600, working all the way up to a thousand. So that's a hundred reps of tens. And, uh, if you've ever had the chance to do that, it's, it's pretty profound. Like you feel like it's a whole body workout. So some of these athletes that I've worked with who are, um, you know, might have a wrist injury or even a shoulder injury to some degree, as long as we can get some sort of movement with the upper extremities during the sprint, um, you know, where you wouldn't normally allow them to grab a weight or, you know, use anything with their hands we found that we've preserved and if not improved some of their upper body strength just by doing these runs. Cause remember you're, you're turning over with your legs at four to four and a half strides per second. Well, your upper body's got to match that. So there's some velocity that's transferring to the upper body. And as you know, anybody who's in a throwing sport, everything comes from the ground anyway. So if you're developing those two things in coordination, lower body and upper body with some high velocity, you're going to get some transfer. I think going back to the original uh, discussion on hamstring strains, then turning into just volume and, and coordination and transfer from lower to upper half. Um, one of the reasons that, or one of the likely reasons that we probably see a bunch of hamstring strains in baseball is, you know, let's say you go 0 for 4 and you get two balls hit to you in the field and you do that three days in a row. Um, and then all of a sudden, that fourth day, you try to bust it out of the box and that's when you strain a hamstring. You just haven't actually run at top velocity in a while and you might go in season a week or two without ever hitting hitting anywhere near your top velocity um can you talk a little bit about how you would preserve um like speed quality or ability to repair ability to sprint at a high speed in season with a baseball athlete yeah i i would say um the simple fact that you know say you're doing something like the 10 meter sprints uh, seven strides Usually that can get you up to about 75% of what your normal top velocity would be. Uh, for some athletes, it might even be higher because they just can't accelerate that far anyways. So just having that exposure, um, say say you choose every other day that you're going to do 
a couple of sets of those 10 meter sprints, 10 by 10. Well, you're getting, and, and, and say you even notch it down and say like, hey, we're going to go at about 90% effort. Well, that's way better than not doing it. Like, and if, if, you know, the way baseball works, you're standing a lot, you might be setting a lot. Uh, and like you said, if you don't get an opportunity to turn over and get those legs turning over at a high frequency with a lot of force application, uh, there is a detraining effect happening all the time. So uh, I'm very cognizant of that. And if I can get people to do, you know, even limited volumes at uh, a reasonable intensity, I know that that's going to help them. That's, you know, it's the whole, you know, like let's stress the immune system a bit so that it has some durability in times when we really need it. So I think this is no different. It's a stress inoculation program. Um, you know, and I think that's first and foremost, that's probably the most important thing is like, are we doing enough so that we don't get hurt? And then once you check that box off, now you can start talking about, well, are we doing enough to actually get an improvement uh, or at least preserve somebody's speed qualities? Because as you know, um, once you get to a certain point, certain age and to a certain level, like if you're, if you're playing in the pros, um, if you stop training, like in college, people tend to train a little more and it's more structured. But when you get it to be a professional athlete, a lot of it could be left up to you. So at least if you're doing some degree of sprint work and, and, and going fast, you can preserve whatever you've, you know, obtained through your youth and have a longer, more successful uh, career. But I think a lot of, a lot of players will, will rely on, you know, maybe their um, cognitive abilities, their instincts and their skills. Um, but if you let the physical prep side fall to the wayside, you could be looking at some injuries that, that limit your ability to just be successful. So I'm always talking about those types of things like, you know, when, you know, can you get it done before you actually practice or, you know, as part of a warm up? and where, where are these little opportunities where we can sprinkle this stuff in? I think it's really important. Um, you know, just like, you know, like anything, like, you know, they talk about people with, you know, chance of getting dementia. Well, use your brain, like work, that muscle. And it, this is the same thing. It's about being persistent and it's not about being excessive. It's just about keeping that in your movement vocabulary. If you talk to a lot of our baseball pitchers, uh, specifically the ones in college or, or recently out of college, and you talk to them about sprinting or conditioning or anything related, um, I, I think it gets a really bad rap uh, because, you know, the weight room is, you know, separate from, baseball coaches and, and baseball practice and a lot of guys gravitate towards that because typically if you're a pitcher at the college level uh, and you have a two and a half hour practice like your your coaches run out of stuff for you to do and so it's like all right just go go run a bunch over there and it's not coached it's not really prepared um, it's just hard and it seems like busy work um, so can you talk a little bit about you know you're talking to a college athlete or any pitcher like why should why should they be into sprinting yeah, I think there's some real issues around, you know, how people view running. And then even sprinting, if you say, oh, we're going to do some sprints, some people think that's like repeat hundreds with 30-second breaks, um, which isn't necessarily applicable to what happens in, in actual sport. And it can be very risky as well. Like I've heard of people like pulling hamstrings, again, running about 75% velocity, but just due to the fact that you know, they're doing a lot of volume 
and they're not paying attention to technique and it's never been coached, it's it's not difficult to to get a strain of a hip flexor, a hamstring, a calf, or a quad, so or even an adductor. So I think just the way running has been done, it's been treated as more of like a punitive exercise, like, hey, you guys, you know, missed that skill or you, you missed that ball or you did something wrong. Uh, you made a mistake in practice, so we're going to make you run. And so that's how it's viewed. So, you know, I'm doing my best to try to, you know, coach people up on, on what the value is of doing it right, um, not having to do that much. Like, you know, you don't have to sprint 100. Maybe you sprint 10, maybe you sprint 15, 20. Um, I, I think we have to kind of recalibrate everybody's opinions of what actual good sprint work is. And in, until we do that, it's, you know, again, if, if you leave it to people's own devices, unfortunately, sometimes, you know, there's bad results and bad outcomes. And so we do have to work at it. I guess anybody involved in sports performance has to, you know, to kind of push in the direction of like everything we do should be planned properly. Everything should have a purpose. And, you know, there's other ways to, to correct people's errors on the skill side. Uh, in practice. And, and it's kind of a lazy way of, of dealing with it. Like, Hey, let's punish them with running. And I, I just think that has to change. Yeah, definitely. And, um, and I think that and included with the, this mindset that like, you know, lifting weights and running sprints are these two totally different entities. Um, they're all geared towards athletic performance. And at the end of the day, like if you're, a, let's say if you're a pitcher, um, your goal should be to throw a baseball harder, more effectively, and safer for a longer period of time. And it doesn't really matter um, what means or methods you're using off the mound to get there. Um, and so, um, I know on our end, you know, since like I, I went to, I saw you speak three times actually um, within like a year, year and a half period, and um, you know, came back to CSP and and guys started sprinting more once once we we started developing that mindset of like, all right. It's just training. It's not necessarily lifting or movement as separate things. Yeah. I mean, even, even just, you know, I, I speak to a lot of people who are very weightlifting, um, sort of focused and, and I'm not anti weightlifting. I just think there's, there's ways that you can divide up your time and, you know, go, okay, how much, you know, what, what is the point of diminishing returns on any given training element? Right. So, you know, how many, how many plyos do we need to do? How many presses do we need to do? How many pulls, how many, you know, all of these different exercises can be evaluated based on, okay, what's, you know, I'm not saying minimum effective dose, but certainly are we doing too much of something and we're not getting a return on it? So it's very easy for me to go like, Hey, could you probably do a little more sprinting? And most, in most cases, people are like, yes, that's probably something we could work on. And then when you talk about um, the returns of, of sprinting and how it can help with not just lower body strength, but upper body strength and, and just targeting the central nervous system and building, you know, just output qualities uh, that can transfer to other activities. I think people start going, oh, okay, that makes sense. And, and maybe, you know, during this time, you know, some people don't have access to a weight room. So um, all the online programming I'm doing now is really shifting it to well, maybe if we did more sprint work, that would, you know, cover off a lot of the lower body lifting you're missing out on right now due to the, you know, the confinement and, and isolation that people are in. So, so it's, it's, it's kind of an interesting time because 
maybe people will start looking at their training differently. And I've, I've encouraged people to do that. Like, Hey, this is your time. There's nothing, there's nothing really happening on the horizon, the short-term horizon here. Nobody has to be ready for the Olympics because they've been postponed by a year. And so why don't you try exploring some of these different concepts? And I think people are starting to do that almost out of necessity and boredom. So it's interesting. Yeah, definitely. And and I think we'll probably see a whole influx of people who who get into sprint work or or get into running of any kind. Um, what would you or what would be kind of your biggest tip or piece of advice for let's say people don't have a gym right now or um, you know, even at some point down the road, like if you're a minor league baseball player, um, you know, and you could be listening to this next August and it be in a in a in a situation where the field doesn't have a weight room or doesn't have much to it. Um, what would be kind of your, your top tier advice for people who are just getting into sprinting or trying to train with sprinting as the main modality? Um, I think one of the big things is probably just that acceleration piece and getting somebody to accelerate with some degree of intensity. And again, it doesn't have to be that far. Like um, I have a friend who, who just has a lot of his team sport athletes just work on three-step accelerations because uh, he's, you know, they, they have some um, issues around, uh, space and, and time. So if he does just three steps for his athletes and they do it well, and they do a lot of repetitions that does transfer to pretty much any sport really well. And so I'm encouraging people not to limit themselves. Like if you can just get three steps in great, if you can get five steps in seven steps, right. That's, that's still going to, um, contribute to your, performance as a player. So, um, you know, uh, just look at your circumstances and go, well, what can I do? You know, the acceleration piece has to be part of it. If it's just two times per week, then great. You're probably going to be way ahead of, of most people who are, are neglecting that quality. Um, do you have to run, you know, out to 40 yards? Um, not necessarily. Like I had a lot of success, like, you know, in Canada training guys and like, uh, over like 30 meter distances, maybe a little farther. And they had to go race in 60 meter runs in competition. And, and they had only been exposed to shorter distances, not the full race distance. And we went, you know, to, to, to meets at university of Washington and my guys would beat most of the, the guys who had access to a full track. So it makes you wonder, like, do I have to do like these full distances? Do I have to do everything? And sometimes you don't, um, and there's benefits to having constraints to, to make you work on these shorter distances and, and perfect the technique and, and just be more uh, consistent at ex exploding and accelerating over very short distances. Um, there's a, there's an endurance quality to that too. It's like, it's not just about, can I do it once, but just by doing the repetition, you get better to do it throughout the entire game. And that's, you know, with some of the NFL teams that, I'm working with, that's what we talk about is, are we just, you know, can we get everybody on the entire team good at just sprinting over six or seven strides? Because, you know, that's the average length of a play isn't that long. So if I can get the entire team moving better uh, over those short distances, um, it's going to go a long way um, to, to helping team speed. So I think that's, that's one of the big things right now is like, you know, and then working on just drills to work on frequency and, and just ground contact quality. Those, those are the kind of the three big things for me. Especially in a sport like baseball. I love the point of, 
you know, just getting really good at three strides or five strides or seven strides, whatever it is. Because, like, if you look at – let's look at the defensive side of the ball in baseball. I mean, an outfielder will occasionally have to run 20, 30, maybe 40 yards. I don't even know if that happens, though. Um, an infielder will very rarely run more than five to ten yards. Um, and then an offensive player, you know, might run at full speed one to two times a game for, for 30 to 60 yards. And so – it's really not a ton of volume um, at those longer distances. Um, where do you see like longer sprints? And I, I mean longer as in anything like greater than 30 yards, so greater than uh, the demands of the sport, right? And we might be able to say 40 or 50 yards on that, but um, where do you see that fitting into training throughout the course of whether it's an off-season or in-season? I think if you're getting beyond 30 yards, um, you know, in, in say a baseball scenario, um, I think there's a couple of things that have to be present. One is um, you have to have done all that um, shorter stuff first to build up that base of acceleration. And then as part of that, you're making sure that people are doing it with good technique. You know, if you get somebody out to 40, 50, 60 yards uh, in a full sprint, there's a lot of risk if, if somebody is not looking good mechanically, uh, technically. So if you are going to take somebody out that long, there's a couple things you have to do. One is you got to make sure they have the technique in place and they're confident with it. And also they understand, you know, what is a hundred percent. So a hundred percent effort doesn't necessarily always mean a hundred percent, you know, in terms of performance, like your best time. So there's a, you know, they must understand the idea that there's a relaxation component to moving fast and sustaining it. So, you know, that's a quality that takes time to develop. And, um, you know, even, you know, I mean, the idea that you want somebody to run faster and farther um, is that there's there's a general benefit to running faster. We know from all the research that the farther you run, so and I'm saying up to about six seconds, so that's you know six sixty meters, fifty sixty meters at at a high level. Um, the more force you put into the ground. There's a great study um, by Nagahara uh, from Japan, and they had like fifty force plates. They put them on the ground and they had people run over them. And they, you know, you can see the profile that the farther they run, the higher the force uh, um, profile is uh, on the, each step. So the first couple of steps are a little more horizontal. And then as you get further in, they start putting more vertical force into the ground to maintain velocity and get up to max velocity. So there is a, a benefit to running farther and faster in terms of, you know, just that, that power output. Um, the central nervous system demand and the elastic components there. So, you know, does everybody need to do that in baseball? Not necessarily, but there might be a certain subset of the team that you're like, okay, these are our base dealers. These are the people going to hit maybe doubles and triples. These are the people that are going to be outfielders that need to sprint farther. Uh, um, maybe we look at developing those qualities and those players. I wouldn't say everybody has to do it, but certainly you might, you might choose part of the team to do it. But, and I think if, even if you look at the, so offensively or guys who play in the field, like you can, you can kind of picture what they need to do or understand the distances that need to run. Um, do you think given like vertical and horizontal force reduction that you could probably justify um, having different types of pitchers do different amounts of long or longer distance stuff. So what I'm thinking with that is there are guys who are more upright in their delivery, who rely more on vertical force production um, versus guys who 
maybe are, are more hunched over, come from a lower arm slot, um, rely a little more on horizontal or just pushing off the mound. Um, do you think you you could justify doing like more longer distance stuff for that first group and less for the, the latter? Yeah, I, I think that's an interesting, um, you know, sort of uh, concept. And again, you know, as long as you felt like the guys that, 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 had to produce the more vertical force in, in an upright position. As long as you felt you got their running technique, their sprinting technique to a point where, you know, they're not sloppy and they understand when you say, okay, I want you to go 95%, 90%, you know, you, they understand what you're coaching and how to um, make that happen on the track or in the training situation. Then, then I think you're fine, you know, but you know, I, I, I was, I wrote an article recently about the culture of speed in an organization. And a lot of these things you have to build over time. Um, if you're working with a group of kids, you're setting things up so that you can do those things, uh, as they spend more time with you, but you certainly have to have all the acceleration in place. Maybe the drills help them with their technical, uh, skills. And then once you have that base of skill and experience, then you can take them out to longer distances and you can explore these things uh, and do deeper dives, um, particularly as, as the athletes uh, move up in levels of performance and they're, they're getting to a point where they're in college or they, they have the ability to, to make it to the pros, then these things get a lot more interesting. So, you know, it's, there's certainly a lot of potential there. Uh, So, a couple things that you've said um, have stood out to me that I, I haven't had a chance to ask about or, or I just noted as wanting to come back to. Um, one, this concept of, of relaxing at these longer distances, um, you know, your, how your 90 or 95% effort might be your 100% speed. Um, I think that will probably really resonate with the baseball community uh, just because when you swing a bat or when you try to throw a ball as hard as you can, um, you can't be tense until the right moments. Um, like when you release a baseball, there should be, you know, um, relative tension through the ball. But if you're tense early in the, in the delivery, you're going to take away from your output. Um, can you talk a little bit about, let's say you have an athlete who is constantly tensing up when they sprint, um, or you just can't get them to relax, which you know, as a coach will, will allow them to run faster. Um, what kind of drills or coaching cues that you use to help with that? Yeah, I mean, a lot of the times, um, I would say in running, um, you're trying to get them to relax. Like you may not even mention the lower body, but you may mention like, you know, their shoulders, their neck, their traps, how they carry their arms. And you might modify even the technique of how they use their arms because a lot of the tension will come there first and they'll, you know, even how they hold their hands, if, if they're gripping their fist and squeezing their fist, that can transfer into the forearms and into the, you know, the upper arm and the shoulders and neck very easily. So I'm a big proponent of, of talking about how people can relax through the shoulders and, and just being conscious of it. Like, you know, okay, everybody, you know, shrug your shoulders as high as you can and then drop them down, you know, so they get a, a sense of like, okay, what's the lower position of the shoulder that, that they should be having when running, you know, what's the difference between tense and what's the difference between relaxed and so walking people through those types of discussions is very important so that they have, you know, sort of a built in awareness around this. Um, and then, you know, you get them like, we'll put out timers and I'll say like, okay, I want you to run this one at a hundred percent and then, you know, give them a break. Okay. Run this one at about 90%. And, and sometimes their perception of effort 
is, is very different. And if they run that at 90%, the time might be the same or even better than the 100% that you've, you've asked them to run. So you almost have to take them through different exercises and, and scenarios to kind of make them aware of their, of their awareness or their lack of awareness around these things. So like I said, it's, it's not a, it's not just always just one cue, but it's a process of making them understand the value of relaxing and much the same as you would when they're working on throwing velocity, like seeing the the radar gun to see what, how their velocity changes when you give them different cues around, around relaxation and, and release points. And, and all these things is important. Same as a golf swing or, you know, you know, there's ways of doing it um, in a progressive manner that they go, they have a bit of an aha moment around it. And there's a self-realization because always just telling them to do it sometimes doesn't work. You know, they have to have, they have to discover it themselves. I love that uh, your answer is very process-based just for the reason of, you know, we'll talk to our coaches and interns about um, you might use a verbal cue or like a quick fix cue and it works, um, but you haven't really helped the athlete until after the fact explaining to them why that worked and what you were working on. Um, So like a weight room example, like if you just say, you know, push through the floor and all of a sudden it cleans up what's happening at the shoulders in a, in a deadlift or a squat. Um, it, it hasn't really helped the athlete long term until you go back and say, hey, that's why we did that because we're working on this. And it sounds like it's very similar in terms of your process with running um, from a standpoint of like one cue isn't going to help them long term. It's only going to help them in the immediate yeah, I don't think it's this is unique to my process or, or unique to running. It's certainly just a it's like a teaching philosophy around a lot of this stuff and and you know, you're looking for affecting a positive change and then in the back of your mind you should be aware that um you have to maintain that quality as well. So the retention piece uh for any educator is is big like, you know, yeah, you can cram for an exam and you might do well but how much of that knowledge or that skill are you retaining? And then how much work is required to maintain that skill at, at a very minimum, you know, throughout a competitive season. I think I'm always thinking about that stuff too. It's, it, it's not difficult to change somebody's technique, but it's certainly difficult to make sure they retain that change. And, um, you know, there's some durability of that change. Sure. I think that makes perfect sense. Um, uh, while we're talking coaching, so, um, given that you know most of the audience is baseball specific, uh, when you watch a baseball player sprint, and it could be on TV, it could be in person, um, but what are some like typical flaws or typical like standout moments? You're like, all right, that person um, sprints like a baseball player. What are the the flaws that you see? Like if we just look at base running, a lot of it's going to be like, okay, I have to get to that base, right? So as soon as somebody sees uh, an endpoint. Like, you know, in, in track, it's a finish line. And in track, you're always saying like, okay, make sure you run, you know, past the finish line if, if people lean too early. And I would say a lot of the time, the same thing is happening in, in a base running scenario where people are anticipating the bag way too early and, and, and losing that process uh, mindset. So, um, and as soon as that happens, people tend to reach with their stride. And I think that's when a lot of these, um, these hamstring issues can crop up is, people get out of the technical model and start reaching and, and, and putting their muscles in very uh, difficult positions. So um, that's probably the biggest one right now is, is, you know, and, 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 you know, obviously when you get into other 
bases, you know, you can't run through like you can on first base. So maybe a different approach has to be, be done there in terms of slide prep and all that. But, but I would say, you know, just making the, the kids understand or the players understand that, you know, what we're doing in our training scenario is we're trying to build in that quality of, you know, again, the stride frequency, um, vertical force production, and just maintaining that quality until you get to your destination is very important. Um, you know, but I, I think I was talking to somebody else earlier today and I said, the unfortunate part about all of this is that you, a lot of people are selected, you know, to move on in their sport based on their skill, um, in that specific sport. So obviously in baseball, you're going to have, you know, throwing, hitting, you know, fielding, those types of things, which are very, very difficult skills to uh, acquire and perfect. Um, so they may move on because of that, but nobody's really looked at their running because like, Hey, this guy can, you know, this guy can knock it out of the park and he hits everything. Right. But that's, what's going to move him forward. And they may, they may overlook his running because of that. Um, so I think I'm always thinking of those types of things is like, just because this person is like an all-star or a major leaguer or, you know, an NFL, you know, wide receiver doesn't mean that they've been taught how to do things. Well, it might just be that, they have natural talent and they've made it this far. So it's our jobs as professionals to make sure that, you know, we fill those gaps and, and, and make sure that they, they understand what good technique looks like and, and try, you know, and, and a lot of this happens a lot of the time. You don't real, really realize it until somebody gets hurt. And then now you have a captive audience to work with somebody and say like, Hey, this is why I think you got hurt from a technical point of view. And then now they're a little more on board of like, well, I got to fix this because I don't want to get hurt again and miss more time. Whereas if they haven't been hurt, they're like, Hey, I'm doing well already. Right. You know, I don't, I don't need to listen to you. I'm still, you know, you know, winning and, 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 and getting paid. So, you know, that's, that's why there has to be a close connection between the people who are doing the rehab and the people who are doing the performance training, because, you know, they're one and the same, in my opinion, you have to, you have to have this integration and understand how important it is to work on this stuff all the time. Sure. I think that makes perfect sense. Um, what, uh, let's say you're a baseball coach or, um, you know, a strength and conditioning coach who maybe doesn't coach a ton of sprint work. Um, what are some landmarks in terms of what you're looking for, um, in, in any sprint? Uh, we can start with acceleration and then get into more upright sprinting. Um, I would say an acceleration a lot of times posture, you know, is somebody trying to run upright uh, right off the, right off the, the gun, you know, and just, you know, they stand up and that, that does affect their ability to put that combination of vertical and horizontal force into the ground in the right way and almost like a pistoning, pistoning effect. Um, if somebody stands up, then they're going to rely too much on their hamstrings to kind of pull them and that's bad. Uh, it's not only the wrong gear to be in, but certainly it's going to compromise, you know, those, those muscles a little more and, and put you in a, a, a situation where you might pull a hamstring. Um, so the posture is important. And then once you have them in the right posture, the other thing is people might tend to bend over and flex too much at the hips and, and put their head down and think that, okay, that's the right posture because I'm kind of curled over and hunched over. And that does compromise your ability to put force into the ground and, and get hip extension properly. So you don't want that either. So you don't want to be too upright. You don't want to be hunched over. You want to have that nice sort of lean as you're accelerating and driving out. So I find that doing just, you know, basic 
starts off the ground, push-up starts, and um, those types of things make them understand how they drive out in that right position. Um, and then the limb movements are important. And again, a lot of the time I focus on, you know, if their posture is good, well, then I have to get the limbs moving uh, in the right, you know, angles and directions well. And I focus on the arms first because that's something that's tangible. Like, you know, you know Charlie Francis always said the arms are, the hands are closer to the brain than the feet, right? So it's a shorter path. So let's work on that first. And I found that just by focusing on the arms, I get better results in the lower body as well. There's a, there's a study out there that talks about this. Uh, I think it's called the coupling of upper, upper and lower extremities. So if I move my hands faster, my legs move faster and vice versa. So, I mean, you know, that could be used for running. So I, I focus on my hands so that my lower body works faster. And then in throwing or hitting, well, I'm activating through the lower body so that I get the reaction in the upper extremity. So I think I use that a lot and I shift emphasis um, to make sure people are, you know, getting the right output. So move your hand quick off that start, right? Get your hands moving in the right direction and then your feet just kind of follow. We're just kind of wired that way. Cool. I love that. And and talking to our pitching coaches here, um, you know, over the last few years, um, one of the things they talk a lot about is this idea of like delaying delaying a push off the mound with your feet. Um, and and the reason very similar to what you're talking about with coupling, like if you're if your feet move at max intent right at right away in delivery, then your hand is also going to start moving at max intent. And in reality, your hand should actually be moving at max intent when you release the ball, not when your hand leaves your glove. And so if you are moving at max intent too early with your hand, then it, it's a lot harder to produce max velocity as you release through the baseball. So um, I think that that definitely has a lot of, um, you know, correlation to sprinting when we talk about, you know, like, all right, if we're sprinting at a lower intensity, maybe it's just slower, it's slowing the hands down. Um, or if we're doing some kind of buildup or, or, or start that, that where we start off slower or maybe we go fast into slow back into fast. Um, this idea of working on your hands to, to feel tempo and feel rhythm, um, I think makes a ton of sense. Yeah. It's just, uh, it, it kind of simplifies things. And I think that's what I'm always striving for is, um, what's a simpler way to teach this skill, um, without making people think too much about every extremity and, you know, where do I put my foot and, I mean, that's the last thing you want to do is make people think too much. So if you can find a way to um, guide them in the simplest way, you're going to get a better result most of the time. And then, again, if you just tell them one thing, if it doesn't work, you're like, well, I guess it was that one thing that didn't work. If you told them five things, you're trying to figure out which one of those things work and which one didn't work. So uh, just by isolating variables and simplifying communication, I find it's just easier to coach. So you talked a bit about um, guys being too hunched over, or too rounded during acceleration stuff. Um, I think, and you can correct me if I'm wrong or if you've seen different, um, but I see that a ton in the younger athletes, so 13, 14, 15, 16-year-olds that we get. Um, and a lot of the time, like, in from the strength and conditioning or the strength side of it, it'll just say, like, all right, just kids will get, get kids stronger and wait till they hit certain strength levels before doing a ton of speed work. Um, which I don't think is totally true, um, but I want to hear a little bit about your thoughts from, uh, you know, what you would do with a younger athlete who maybe isn't fully developed and does need to get a lot stronger. How how do you program sprint work for them? 
Um, a lot of the time I will, like, you know, a lot of people will get down on, oh, doing sprint drills and, oh, you can't do, doing drills never makes anybody faster. But I think what the drills do for the younger population is it provides them with some structure around, you know, where you put your limbs, the posture piece, the frequency, you know, it, it, it gives you some infrastructure upon which to build your coaching approach, right? So, um, you know, and, and, and the higher level the athlete, probably the less I use drills, maybe as part of warm up, but I'm not necessarily getting to do a lot of drills because I think, you know, they're kind of beyond that. But, but certainly for the kids, getting them to understand, you know, how high to lift the knee, where to place the foot in the drill, where's the hand position in relation to the, the opposite ex lower extremity. Um, I think there's a lot of value in that. And then the other part of the drills, like there's a strengthening component in terms of strengthening hip flexors, hip extensors, um, you know, the lower leg and the elasticity piece is very important. So I, I'll even just do a lot of, you know, pogo jumps and just working on foot and ankle interaction on the ground and building that elasticity. Like I'm sure a lot of, you know, kids don't do jump rope anymore. So, okay, well, then I have to start working on that sort of reflexive quality of the foot hitting the ground and making sure they're not too plantar flexed or too dorsiflexed on ground contact and just, you know, just building that reflex quality. So jumps, um, you know, getting them to do some runs up inclines, hills. I like inclines better because again, if you have a sled, then you're constantly hooking the sled up to people and it's figuring out the right weight and the coefficient of friction on, on the surface. So if you do have an incline or a hill to run up, um, it makes it a lot easier and it puts them in the right position. And if they're not strong enough, then they're forced to push a little more, which is probably what they need at that time. And then if they're, as they get more elastic, then the elasticity takes over and they don't have to push as much. It's more of a front side activity. So, you know, uh, there's, there's little ways of, of working with kids that you don't have to train them like an adult. You can spend more time in the drills. You can spend more time running up hills, uh, and having fun with it. Um, but certainly like even with my own kids, my, my oldest ones are 15 and 13 and I didn't really start doing a lot of stuff with them technically until like the last year or two, um, because it just, it just didn't seem right in terms of their knowledge and their awareness of what needed to be done and, and just their attention span. So yeah, I would take them out and we'd sprint and we try to make it competitive and I tried to disguise it, and not make it seem like a formal training session. Now they're old enough where we can make it a formal training session and I can coach them. You know, I'm very careful about the, the parent being that overbearing coach. Um, so I'm trying to, again, simplify it, let them have some sort of control over it um, and not just barking orders at them. So uh, there's a lot of things you can do with, with young athletes that still keep it fun, but it's part of that process we were talking about earlier. Like we're kind of we're kind of planting seeds so that when they get to the point where they get more serious and they have that attention span, okay, now we have all these things built in the, the limb movements through the drills, the ground contacts, some general strength qualities. And even with like, I haven't been doing a lot of weights with them either. We do some stuff, but I just feel that that's really not necessary at this point in their, their development um, careers. So. Cool. I think it's great. And especially the point, um, you know, about having you know, in the strength and conditioning community, we refer to them as like open and closed loop drills. Open loop drills as a kid is basically just playing free play. 
Um, and I think that's just forgotten about a lot. And um, I know from uh, some of Dr. Greg Rose's stuff and TPI, they, they talk a lot about like critical periods or periods of development where you have to uh, basically develop these speed qualities that if you don't do something with that you're not going to as well later on. Um, and I think a lot of that just comes down to letting kids run around and, and do stuff at full speeds that isn't monitored. Um, and, and at least in, in our setting, the worst thing is, you know, if you get a kid who's 13 or 14 and hasn't played another sport other than baseball in years, um, because chances are they just go and hit, they just go and throw. Um, they do very little other than that. Um, whereas other sports tend to lend themselves a little more to playing pickup sports. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I, I ran into one of your guys' uh, uh, players, Syndergaard, yeah. in New York one time. And um, it was funny. I was asking him, so what sports did you play? He's like, baseball. <laughs> yeah. Like, well, <laughs> <laughs> yep. So yep. And, was- and it obviously worked out for him from a career perspective. But um, there's a lot of kids. I mean, I would say probably up here in Massachusetts, um, probably half if not a little more of our kids are one sport athletes, I would say half. Um, and then 75 plus percent of them are two sport athletes. And then we get this very small percentage of the population that is a three sport. And I think it's, it's part, partially because if you have the time to come into a private se- a private sector facility and, and commit two, three, four months to training, that probably means you aren't playing a sport in that season. Um, so I think that's why we see f- so few three sport athletes and so many one sport athletes, but uh, I'm sure the percentages aren't that that different outside of outside of our setting. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, I I think yeah, it's very difficult to like you know have this perfect long term athlete development model where you know they're playing multi sports and and I see a lot of people leaning on those long term athlete development models and we have one in Canada and it's it's like okay I get it. Um, but there is some value in the early specialization from a skill development point of view, um, even just the way things are structured and, and you have to have certain skills in place before you can move on to the next level. And so, you know, you're, you're straddling a line. Um, and, you know, as long as you're getting some, some of the sprint work in and you're doing some fun stuff and, and maybe you are a single sport athlete, you know, maybe there's reasons why that has to be your reality. But as, as long as you're trying to round out your, your physical training so that you do fill some of those gaps and you make it fun and, you know, it's, it's not, it's, it's not this sort of boring sort of, you know, approach to training and, and, and just so focused. So I, I, I'm, I'm conscious of that too. Like I've, I've worked with enough athletes, you know, whether it's gymnastics or figure skating or whatever, where you're like, okay, that's all they're doing. That's all they, because their, their schedules are so stacked and packed. Right. So, um, yeah, I, I try not to be like, um, you know, naive to that. Totally. And I think it, and your point on like models and having this perfect long-term athletic development plan, I mean, nothing we do is ever going to, nothing we do from a theoretical perspective is ever going to a hundred percent line up in real time. Um, and, and the, the longer the plan is, um, whether it's, even if you're programming for a, for a college athlete, if you try to plan out a year, um, that's going to be less accurate than planning out a month. And so it's the same thing with with youth athletic development. I mean, if you plan out, here's the 10-year program for this person, 
the the ten day program or the one month program is going to be a lot more accurate to what that person needs. Um, and so I think we just have to constantly ask ask ourselves, you know, what the person needs a little more in the moment, being aware of the long term model, but being able to adjust it within. Um, one thing uh, I want to touch upon before we're done. So you mentioned um, we talked a lot about the youth stuff over the last ten minutes or so, and um, I want to get into a little bit on the higher end athlete training. So whether that's a high level college guy or professional athlete, um, you you mentioned something about not really using many drills with those guys, and if you do, they're more as a warm up. Um, can you talk a little more about uh, what you're specifically looking to get from those guys and how you might go about structuring training? Um, yeah, I'm, I'm I'm highly conscious of you know in any say professional sports setting. Um, like I said, time's always your <laughs> time's your enemy, or lack of time's your enemy. So, if I'm going to be working with something, somebody, or or giving recommendations around it, you know, I'm really looking for like what's the maximum bang for your buck in that scenario. So, I mean, maybe you you use the warm up to talk a bit about some of the technical aspects of running drills, and and you're just again you're planting seeds. Uh, and creating awareness amongst the athletes, you're not necessarily using the drill to affect a performance outcome directly, but certainly you can talk about where you put your head, where you put your hands, how you place your feet on the ground. And then when it comes to doing the actual runs, you know, the shorter runs, the shorter sprints, you know, there's at least some context that the athlete can work with. And there's some understanding there. So if you have 10 minutes, like maybe you have a five minute warm up, and you have 10 minutes to work with them, you know, I'm going to be doing a lot of short sprints in that, that 10 minutes. And I might do the drills as a setup in that warm up. You know, I've, I've even talked about like, you know, warm up now has been kind of bastardized into like this sort of dynamic, you know, vocabulary of, Oh, all these different movements are going to be in our sports. So we got to trace them out. And none of those movements are done at any velocity that that's similar to what happens in the game or, or, or intensity or force application. So it's almost like, well, okay, you know, it's like really crappy shadow boxing uh, before a heavyweight championship, right? So sometimes I just say, like, why don't you just, you know, do these this one drill with some intensity or and then just start getting into some progressive acceleration so that we get you to an intensity that allows us to train at a higher intensity without, you know, not being prepared and, and risking injury. So sometimes I'll just say like, Hey, do an acceleration over 10, then do an acceleration over 15, walk back 20, you know, and just gradually build those up. Um, and some people say, well, that's not, you know, sports specific and it's not whatever, you know, the, all the movements. And it's like, well, okay, would you rather get them up to an intensity systemically that heats them up and gets them ready neurologically? Or would you rather do your low velocity crappy drills that aren't going to do anything for them? Right. Uh, might build a false sense of security. So, you know, I, I'm constantly battling that time piece and trying to make sure that I do get some value out of anything we do. Um, and a lot of the time it will just be like, okay, let's just accelerate. I, I love that answer. And, and it, it kind of speaks to your whole coaching philosophy in, in terms of keeping things really simple, whether it's, all right, let's just coach hands on a sprint or um, you know, let's work on 10 yard starts or, or whatever it is. Like every, anytime I've ever heard you answer a question, whether it's here or a different podcast or seeing you speak in person, your answer is usually simpler than expected. 
um, in a very positive way because I think that kind of reaffirms to people like it doesn't have to be super complicated to be effective. Um, you know, like if you want to train athletes at a high level, just just make them move faster might be the easiest way to do it. Um, or it might be one of the, the lowest hanging fruit or something that they're not necessarily doing a ton of. Um, so I think that that definitely kind of sums up, um, you know, kind of the whole overarching philosophy that you talked about over the last hour. Um, go ahead. Yeah. Yeah, I would say that's it. Like, I'm not trying to amaze anybody with, uh, uh, you know, complex solutions. Like, I just don't think that's, you know, it might keep your audience, you know, uh, for a short period of time. But when they find out that the, that's actually useless information that they can't apply, um, you know, people aren't going to keep coming back. It's, you know, like, what's the best way to not get infected by COVID-19? Well, stay away from people and wash your hands. Like, you know, okay, great. You know, we don't need any complex explanations beyond that. And, you know, and I don't think it's any different with what I'm talking about. I think, I think it's awesome. And it's like probably the second or third time you use like a real life example that, that kind of cements it from an analogy perspective. Like, all right, that adds up. It's very similar to coaching or very similar to training. Um, Derek, while we're wrapping up a couple questions kind of at the end here. Um, what do you want to do next in your career? Anything big you're working on? Um, anything that you want to see yourself develop or do differently over the next few years? Um, I mean, uh, this is a, to use a baseball analogy, this is a bit of a curveball now, right? So I think we're all having to rethink, you know, what we do moving forward. And, um, you know, we've heard a lot of people talk about like, well, I'm just going to switch everything to online coaching. And I don't think that's the answer. I think that's, that's a bit of a, an option or a short-term solution. Um, but I think, you know, I think people are going to be looking for opportunities to engage each other in person. And um, so I, I think that's what I'm really looking at is like, what's this mix going to be? Is it going to be, you know, I, I, I value being able to talk to people like yourself you know, we're on opposite sides of the continent, but we can still have great conversations and learn from each other. So that's, that's obviously still going to be a part of what I do. Um, but how do I mix in this sort of in-person and, and sort of, you know, uh, I'm not going to say genuine, but certainly it's just a little more, um, I think there's a lot more value to doing things in person and taking things away um, and just valuing the experience of that process, um, because maybe now we won't take it for granted as much, um, you know, and like, Hey, we can fly anywhere at any time. Maybe we think about where we fly and who we meet, um, and who we spend time with, because maybe we won't have that opportunity, opportunity to do it as much. So those are kind of the, the bizarre things I'm thinking of right now. Um, but, you know, professionally, I think, those things have to fall into place. Like, obviously I want to work with, you know, professional teams and, 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 and teach my courses, um, to people. And, and that's still part of the plan. But I think, you know, uh, I'm, I'm really rethinking, you know, what's going to be of, of most value to me, uh, moving forward and, and how I spend my time. Sure. And I think the whole, like everything's going to be online or, or, you know, most of it's going to be online or whatever it is. Like going back to a lot of the, the questions you've answered over the last hour, like it, it sounds like a lot of your coaching philosophy or your, your coaching skill set um, is based around your eye and your ability to see things in real time and, 
and not necessarily your eye because you did mention like frequency and, and hearing hearing athletes feet hit the ground and and these things that happen in real time that um sure i'm sure i'm sure there's some way you could simulate it virtually or 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 do better than than a lot of people online um but I, I still think there's there's still tremendous value in being in person coaching. Uh, am I correct on that? It sounds like a lot of your coaching is based around that. Yeah, I mean, I, I've I, I've had a lot of sort of apprehension around doing distance based coaching for the longest time, and and you know I've I found ways around that, and I found some significant value because again, the alternative for a lot of athletes might be they don't have anybody to work with or nobody with any experience. So. Um, I understand where compromises can be made and you can still have value added. So, uh, but I do, you know, there's a reason why we go to watch a live performance for, from a musician or go to a Broadway show or go to a live sporting event. There's, there's other intangibles as part of that. And I think coaching is no different. Like you can get something out of it that, and even if it's not, if it doesn't directly contribute to performance, but the people participating in it, get something out of that experience. I, I, I think we can't, I mean, it's not measurable, but I'm certainly thinking, you know, that's something that people uh, can take away and, and benefit from even on a social level or a, an emotional level. So, um, you know, I, I'm thinking about that stuff a lot now, because again, we have yeah. a lot of time to think about this stuff. <laughs> yeah. I think we all are um, having a lot of, a lot of free time on our hands or a lot of, a lot of time to contemplate things. Um, while we're on the subject, um, you know, in a, in a, I guess a relatively brief answer, um, or as brief as you can comfortably make it. Um, other than the simple answer of just watch people sprint, um, how do you recommend to coaches to go about like developing their eyes so they can start to see things better in real time? Um, I think it's important to get, uh, you know, again, a broad sample. So it's very easy to watch like, Hey, I just watched like, YouTube videos of Usain Bolt sprinting. And then, you know, that's, that's one individual who has a certain strategy around his, you know, his, his body type and his dimensions and all that. Um, but I, I mean, I, I was used to watching like everybody, like from like the 1960s and seventies, I'd watch film, you even go back and watch Jesse Owens and how he ran and he's running on a center track. So it's a little different strategy. Um, than what they're running on now with this very highly engineered tracks. And then now you have people wearing different shoes. And so I, I think part of that training of the eye has to be, you got to watch a lot of sports. You got to watch a lot of performers and you have to build your own sort of, you know, biological database of, of what you've seen, uh, what the performance yielded in terms of time and, you know, what the outcome was like, it's, none of this stuff that we're talking about is an overnight thing. Like it's something that you have to, you know, train your eye, train your ear. Um, and then not, not pass judgment quickly. Like a lot of people say like, Oh, I, I see exactly what they're doing wrong. And, um, a lot of people I think move too quickly in their assessment process and, and, and nail it down where I'm sort of like, I'd rather just sit back and kind of watch a bit longer. And if I don't get it on the first rep, I'll do another rep, do another rep, right? Like, and then, you know, maybe I don't get it in that session. So let's come back. Let's do it again. You know, this idea that you have to sample things over time and then get a good sense of it, I think is, is maybe something that's not taught. Everybody wants to be a genius on the spot in real time all the time. And, and I'm, I'm probably the first person to admit that 
Um, while I do see things, I may see something and I'm like, okay, I got to see it again, just in case. And maybe again, I'm not, I'm not going to blurt out like what I think the solution is right away because I've just been around too many scenarios where it's like, you know, it's so easy to jump the gun and say, this is the problem. And then it's something else, like whether it's rehab or injuries and all that. A lot, a lot of people love to say that they were a genius and figured out after the fact what the problem was, but you don't really know a lot of the time. So I'm, 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 you know, a lot of the people that I surrounded myself with and learned from were pretty humble about that stuff. And they'd say, okay, this is my opinion, but that's just my opinion. You got to be careful. So that's, that's sort of a lesson that I've learned over time. Yeah. I find that answer really comforting. Cause I think, um, especially as a, as a younger coach, like when you start out, you are only surrounded by people with a lot of experience, right? It's not like we, um, it's not like we're only coaching your, like we have, let's say you're a first year coach, second year coach. You're not only coaching around people who are first, second year coaches, you're coaching around people who have some serious experience. Um, and so you're inherently thinking like, all right, they must see everything. And so, or they must see things so fast or, or, oh, this guy coaches high level athletes. So he must, he must know everything about the way they move. And so I think it's actually very comforting or, or um, makes, I think, other people in the field feel okay about not knowing something, um, understanding that like there's a process of getting to know more. Yeah. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's, <clears throat> I think, you know, having kids and, and being a parent and doing all these other things. And as you grow older, and I mean, these things become a lot more clear to you. Um, Maybe it maybe as you run out of time, right? Like as you get older, you're like, oh shit, I don't have much longer to go here. So I, I, I think that's, you know, that that's why I think there's a lot of people out there who say, well, you know, just because I'm not old doesn't mean I don't know what I'm doing, and I, I'm very careful about that. Like I think there's some value in having that experience under your belt and and having that patience to really assess things properly and take your time and not think that you know everything so and i'm probably i've learned that more from being a, a husband and a, a father more than anything else <laughs> um all right so derek just to wrap up here uh, where can our listeners find out more about you um the i have two websites that i work out of uh sprintcoach.com which is more sort of uh you know the speed stuff uh that relates to consulting and working with teams and individuals and then I have a, a my where my courses are from is runningmechanics.com and so those are you know mostly in person courses you know obviously I'm looking at maybe doing some some online stuff there and then the social media for for those is I think at running mechanics on Instagram and and just my normal social media for Instagram and Twitter is at Derek D E R E K M is in Matthew Hansen H A N S E N so um, that's where you can kind of keep track of me all right awesome well thanks for taking the time today i really appreciate it and hopefully there's uh, plenty of takeaway points for for people who got this far into the episode yeah thanks a lot for having me john and and, and look forward to getting some feedback and, and maybe doing something more with you guys in the future all right thanks again take care Thank you for joining us for another episode of the CSP Elite Baseball Development Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, we'd be thrilled if you'd consider subscribing to the podcast and leaving us a review to read on iTunes. We welcome your suggestions for future guests and questions 
just email EliteBaseballPodcast at gmail.com. Thank you for your continued support, and we'll see you next episode.